This podcast is graphic and deals with mature subject matter. You're listening to True Crime Chronicles. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson. I'm joined, as always, by Spencer Brudig and Jessica Knoll. Guys, we'll uh, get into a new case in just a few minutes. But first this week, I'm joined by reporter Drew Horansky from WKYC in Cleveland, Ohio. He is the host of a new podcast called Amy Should Be 40, and Drew is here to tell us all about it. And it is the case of Amy Mihaljevic, a major story in the area of northeastern Ohio, of Cleveland, Ohio, uh, back in the 80s, the late 80s. Drew, tell us what happened to Amy. Well, we're at the 30-year anniversary of Amy Mihaljevic's abduction. Amy was a 10-year-old girl who lived in Bay Village, Ohio, which is a lakefront suburb about 15 miles west of Cleveland. And she had agreed to meet a stranger who had cold called her at a shopping center about a block from her school. So she had lied to her mother, said she had choir practice after school. And instead of returning home like she was supposed to, she goes to the shopping center where kids her age who were at an ice cream parlor see her getting into a strange man's car, going off with a stranger. Um, For months, this story completely captured the community's attention, even got national attention, because this was a community where crime just didn't happen. And if you look at the crime that happened this year, there was nothing along the lines of a murder. It had been years since there was a murder there. I do want to mention, though, this is the community where the famous Sam Shepard case happened, so we can't say nothing out of the ordinary has ever happened there, but it was pretty safe. So months go by, there's an all-out effort to try to find her. There is a center established for volunteers in the center of Bay Village, which had as many as 200 people. Uh, About 2 million flyers are circulating for Amy. And it isn't until the following year, February of 1990, that her body is discovered by a jogger about 50 miles from Bay Village in a very rural area in a field. And then the questions begin as to who left her there and why they took her. So, With the discovery of a body, there is often, usually, uh, new clues, new evidence. What happens next in the investigation? They knew that she had been sexually assaulted. They knew that she died from blunt force trauma to the head, and there were also stab wounds in her neck. And the questions really were psychological. Who would do this and why? Was it an attempt at control, power? Um, And then, of course, the how. Few cases have actually created so many suspects. Um, it started with the son of a handyman who worked in the who had once worked for the family. There was a guy where Amy rode horses. Um, she was taking riding lessons, and there was there was a man there who was established as a suspect. Um, I do want to mention that over the years, nobody has been charged in this case. Um, there were teachers, not in Amy's school district, but in other districts that might have seen her at a science center that was a very popular, still is a popular place for kids to go on field trips. And to this day, they have not been able to actually charge anyone. And I can tell you that in these many years of researching this, they have tried some of the best minds in the country. They've put some of the best minds in the country on this case, including Phil Torsney, who is a famous FBI investigator who actually solved the Whitey Bulger case, and they felt that maybe he could be helpful in this case. So over the years, they have gotten thousands of leads. They get tips every single week. They have had suspects that number in the dozens. 
from teachers to handymen to um, just people who might have been in the wrong place at the wrong time and seem suspicious um, and yet have not been able to levy or, 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 or charge anyone. Drew, as you've dug into this story, as you've investigated the case of Amy Maholovic, there are people who are adults now who were living in the area at the time uh, who just really still don't want to talk about it. There's Yes, Will, and you raise a really important detail to the story, and that is that this killer called Amy to arrange this meeting. And there have been questions in the community as to how he would have identified her, where he would have gotten the phone number. And that's where we go back to the Science Center, which back in the day, they no longer do this. Visitors would sign a guest book with their name and phone number in there, and that book turned up missing. Well, what happened investigators were able to determine before the abduction was that somebody had called a number of girls who had signed into that book, as many as 20 girls. And after Amy's abduction, the calls stop. Now, for our reporting, we have tried to contact some of these girls and, you know, through friends of friends and such, we were able to successfully do so. However, we were not able to get any on record for our podcast because even today, they are still very much disturbed and freaked out by this story, even as adults feel that the killer hasn't been caught, hasn't been brought to justice. The killer at one time knew their names and had their telephone numbers, and they don't want to go on record with their names because they don't want to put themselves out there in the event this killer is somehow still paying attention to them even where their lives are today. Drew Horansky, host of Amy Should Be 40 at WKYC in Cleveland. Thanks for joining us. Of course. I should also mention that in the podcast, Drew digs into the fact that there are still three fragile hairs collected as evidence from this case. Those hairs could still hold answers in the form of DNA. And if you'd like to learn more about the case and what's going on with that evidence, listen to Amy Should Be 40 wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, I want to switch gears and get into this week's case. Jessica, tell us about this case in Houston, Texas. So, well, this week we are talking about a teenage girl who is lured to a fake Halloween party in a field in Houston. But the problem is, is there's no party. When I first read the briefing for this story, this case really does seem like a something out of a horror film. Yeah, this, this story is just horrific and unimaginable. You know, she is taken to a party by people she thinks are her friends. All right, Jessica, and we're bringing the story to our listeners this week with the help of Grace White at KHOU in Houston. She was fixing to graduate high school and uh, in November of that year, and she was going to turn 18 that January, and then that all ended. It's October 29, 1999. 17-year-old Felicia Ruiz is getting ready for a Halloween party, but by the end of the night, she is tricked. And the man at the center of this investigation will elude investigators for two decades in an international manhunt. But first, a little more about Felicia. She's pretty, she's friendly, she's a good student, things are going well for her, but she's, you know, as teenagers do, they're kind of coming and going from different friend groups, and and she's getting involved with people, you know, that she's just kind of starting to form these relationships with. That's Grace White, KHOU investigative reporter and host of Missing Pieces. She's been covering Felicia's story, a story that all started with the Latin Kings. Felicia's a senior when her parents pull her out of the high school she's attending to protect her from the Latin Kings. She just flat told us that they were trying to get her to join the Latin Kings. 
And we just talked to her and told her, you know, no, you know better than that, you know. It's a street gang that Houston police say Jesus Salazar belongs to. He's dating Lisa Huerta, but Felicia's mom says Jesus has an eye for her daughter. See, when it started out is that everybody had the story that Felicia and Jesus were, were girlfriend and boyfriend. That's as far from the truth as you could ever get. Felicia had no interest in him like that whatsoever. And she told him, and he, he acted like everything was fine, but truth was he got mad. And so then when uh, Lisa found out, she told him, and he, because he, he had tried, they had tried to recruit Felicia, and she didn't want to join the gang. And, but she learned, she wanted to know about it, but she didn't want to join it. Okay, let's put it like that. And Felicia, uh, you know, when she told us about it, we said, well, you know, just go back to school and tell them you'll be friends with them at school and leave it alone, you know, because you're fixing to graduate. You're not going to be around them any, much more. Well, Lisa Huerta would not let it go. She told Jesus, if you love me, you'll prove it by killing her. That's when the couple devises a plan under the guise of a Halloween party. Her father, Lou Ruiz, says Felicia can hardly contain her excitement about the party when she asks for permission to go that Friday night. She, she finally let it out. She says, Dad, can I go to a party? And, and, and me, I'm kind of, <clears throat> I was a little strict. And I, I kind of looked at Carrie, and Carrie looked at me. And then uh, I said, well, what time is it going to be? She said, well, it's going to be, you know, after it's a midnight. It's a haunted house. She said, it's, we're going to a haunted house party. Her parents hesitate but eventually give in and let her go. Her mom, Carrie, remembers that last moment she saw her daughter as Jesus picked her up for the party. She told her, well, on the way out, she said, I love you, Dad. She told her that she loved him, and she walked out the door always. She never left home without telling us that. And then we were walking down the driveway, and she had her Adidas jacket, and it was kind of cool. And uh, she had, she took it off, she had it over her arm, and I, and I said, Mommy, do you have any money on you so, you know, in case you have to call us or something, you know? And I said, you know you have to be home in a couple hours, Felicia. She said, I know, Mom. And she says, yeah, I got, you know, money. She showed me. And I said, okay. And so then uh, she went to get in the car, and I, and I was on the driver's side, and I seen him, and I said, I want her home in an hour and a half, two hours, and no later than that. And he never said anything. He just kind of nodded his head. And, you know, then I should have snapped, but why I let, I didn't, I don't know why, okay? And then she went to get into the car, and, uh, she, and she raised back up, and she said, I love you, Mom. And I said, I love you too, Mommy. And she got in the car and drove off into the night, and that was the last time we saw her alive. Felicia never makes it home. The time passes when she's supposed to come home, and her mom and dad actually go out looking for her. Uh, they don't find her, the next day happens, and they report her missing, and they're terrified because they know that Felicia, the last person they saw her with, was this Jesus Salazar guy, and they knew he was a member of the Latin Kings, and they knew um, that could mean trouble for their daughter. But her parents could have never fathomed what happened to their daughter that night after they said, I love you, and shut Jesus's car door. Jesus walks with Felicia into an open field, but there's no party. Instead, two 17-year-olds, Lisa Huerta and Jay Farrell, are waiting in the bushes with a deadly plot. Jesus throws the first punch, and she goes down, and then the three come out, and then kind of circle around Felicia and begin stabbing her repeatedly. Investigators say she was stabbed more than 20 times and died there in that field. That was a violent, violent murder. Nobody should have to die that way. And, I, and, and if, if anybody in this 
country thinks that Lou and I are going to forgive them for, for what they did? No way. No way in hell will I ever forgive them. I'll see them in hell, but I'll never forgive them for it. Her mom agonizes about her daughter's last moments alive. I can't imagine the fear she felt, must have felt, when she realized what was fixing to happen to her. Because as she walked into that field, she had to notice there wasn't nobody and there wasn't no party. And she turned to look at Jesus, and before she could, when she looked back, he sucker punched her. They said he stepped back, and he hit her so hard that her feet flew up in the air, and she landed in a fetal position. And there was three of them on top of this one tiny little girl. Detectives start interviewing suspects. Jay is questioned by Houston police. He claims it was all Jesus' idea. So we actually were able to obtain a taped interview uh, of Houston police talking to Jay Farrell, in which he said, he kind of spills the beans. He said he was telling me that he had to kill her. Uh, he's talking about Jesus Salazar had to kill Felicia. Uh, he kind of goes into detail about how Lisa rents this hotel room, pulls out this knife, and kind of gets instructions from Salazar on how to carry out Felicia's murder. So it kind of takes it to this whole level of premeditation and, um, you know, just this whole other level of, oh my gosh, this is so horrible, but this is actually something that there were discussions about beforehand and that they thought through, uh, which is just really hard to process. But Farrell in this taped interview kind of goes on and, and says, Salazar is describing how to cut her throat um, and how you know the bleeding would happen and then how you would kind of end up knowing that a person is dead. So obviously, again, these are just teenagers, an incredibly violent conversation. Jesus is also questioned early on in the investigation. They took him in for questioning, but at the time, didn't. it was very early on, they didn't know enough or have enough to hold him, so he gets, you know, released. Uh, the investigation continues, and probably, you know, about the time that they realize, hey, we need to, you know, really get something on this guy or go get him, he's gone. As Deputy U.S. Marshal Cameron Welsh explains, 17-year-old Jesus Salazar and Lisa Huerta disappear. Jesus and Lisa had fled the Houston area together and sought refuge in a hotel down in South Beach, Miami. It was at one point, approximately about a week later, that Jesus's father flew in on a private jet from Venezuela and took his son back to Venezuela uh, and left Lisa in Florida. Lisa continued back across the country to Texas and hit out with some family in San Antonio for a little while, at which point she uh, self-surrendered to law enforcement. Lisa Huerta and Jay Farrell are both convicted of murder and sentenced to 30 years behind bars. But Jesus Salazar, the alleged ringleader of the trio, is gone, on the run, for two decades now. And time has not healed her parents after burying their only daughter. This, this murdering creep is still out there, and, you know, we can't touch him. We can't get him. And, uh, and it, it's just hard to know that she's been gone that many years and that he's been free that many years. But in 2015, a photo of Jesus surfaces on social media and gives her parents some newfound hope that Felicia's killer will finally be brought to justice. That is 
the biggest break they've had in recent years on Salazar um, is this picture. Uh, but it's Jesus Salazar looks like he's at the beach or something. I mean, he's got this beer in his hand, this gun in arm's reach, and he's got a big grin on his face. U.S. Marshals that are currently working the case say they're very aware of of the picture and um, they're still tracking Salazar. They said this is not you know, a case that's just sitting on a shelf and they're not actively investigating. They say they they are working on this constantly and, and tracking him. It's an image Lou Ruiz can't get out of his mind. When I seen that picture, I mean, it, it, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it's just like he's sitting there at a beach, having a good time, laughing, like no remorse. It's, I mean, it's heartfelt. I mean, I just, it felt, I, I just made him so mad. I just wanted to just reach into that picture and just grab him and just, choke him to death. But the case against him, well, it's complicated. Uh, he's from Venezuela, that's his home country, and that's where they believe he is hiding out today. You know, obviously, uh, extraditing criminals from other countries is complicated, especially Venezuela, the political situation there, you can imagine. But they believe he has the network of friends and family to protect him over there. Deputy U.S. Marshal Cameron Welsh has been relentlessly hunting Jesus for nearly a decade as the lead case agent on the fugitive investigation. There's a lot of red tape. Uh, we had a murder that happened on U.S. soil of a U.S. citizen by a guy that was here in our country illegally and sought refuge back in a country that we have a loosely based extradition treaty with. I get the case 11 years following the murder and I immediately told the family it's twofold. I said, the first part is I'm going to have to find him. And the second part is, if I find him in the country that I believe he's in, it's how we're going to get him back. So they've always been understanding. They've always uh, have known that this was going to be a difficult task. And they've instilled a lot of trust and, and, and faith in myself and the United States Marshal Service. So that's been very uplifting during this time. Um, it's, it's, it's been hard as an investigator knowing that I'm on the heels of a guy more than likely in a country that, you know, isn't going to play fair with us. It's been a challenge, he says, but her parents cling to hope that it's only a matter of time. He, he's going to get caught, so he better start looking over his shoulder because it's, justice is coming, and, it, and it, then it's right behind him. He's mm -hmm. going to get caught. It's a promise Carrie makes to her daughter the last time she sees her. You go to bed with it, you wake up with it, you know, it consumes a lot of your life. And a lot of people say, well, it's 18 years later. Why don't you move mm -hmm. on? How do you do that? Mm -hmm. How the hell do you do that? And, you know, I mean, you, you can't. You can't because there's know. a murderer still out there. And that's the last thing we told her before they closed the casket. We, I, told, I bent over and, and, and kissed her and said, Mommy, we are going to get all of these people that hurt you. And we haven't given up since. This is definitely my career case. This is the one that I have emotionally connected to with the family on a level more than any other of my cases before. I've, I've sat on the phone with these people and, and, and cried with these people and laughed with these people and have just sat down and, and had meals with them and visited with them. And they're not going to stop seeking justice for their daughter until Jesus is in custody and stands trial for what he did to their daughter. And, and I completely agree with them. And I, I, I want to do my part and getting him back here on U.S. soil 
so they can have their day in court with him. The U.S. Marshal, who vows to find Jesus, also has a message for the fugitive. I just want to let him know that I never forgot about you and that I was always, always going to continue looking for you. Even after I retired, I was still going to continue my pursuit and justice for this family. So uh, I would just tell him straight to his face, kind of cliche, but, you know, you can run, but you can't hide. You know, it's, it's not going to be forever. If you have any information on the whereabouts of Jesus Salazar, contact the Houston area Crime Stoppers or Police Department. So, Jessica, that's a really horrific and really scary story. Uh, is there any update on the perpetrators of this case uh, and all the folks that were involved? Yeah, so Spencer, Jay Farrell, who is already in prison um, and was one of Jesus Salazar's accomplices, is actually up for parole this year, and he's set to go before the parole board in November. With the main perpetrator of this case and the main suspect of this case on the run, does this case continue to get a lot of media attention? Yeah, Felicia's case has actually been featured several times on America's Most Wanted, and that's mostly due to the fact that Jesus has fled to Venezuela. Um, and so that's why the U.S. Marshals are involved in this case, trying to track him down and using the Facebook photo that came to light as another tool in a way to finally find him, you know, 20 years later. All right, Jessica, thanks for bringing us the story this week. And again, thanks to Grace White at KHOU in Houston. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story. True Crime Chronicles is a Vault Studios production. You can tell your friends to listen, subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and all major listening apps. You can find Vault Studios on Twitter, Instagram, and check out our Facebook group, Gone Cold, where we discuss this and other cases.